Hey guys, welcome to the session on Decoupling, a Technique for Overcoming Bias with David Maley. I'm Melinda Wang and I'll be your MC for this session. Um, you guys are already probably familiar with the drill by now, but we'll be starting off with a pre-recorded talk by David and then transition to a live Q&A session where he'll respond to some of your questions and hopefully most of your questions. So now I'd like to introduce you to our speaker, David. David Manley is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He teaches at the graduate and undergraduate level on a wide range of topics in philosophy. And here's David. Hello, everyone. My name is David Manley. I teach philosophy at the University of Michigan. And um, I have started to teach a critical thinking course over the last few years. Um, I looked all over the place for interdisciplinary uh, work on uh, the most systematic ways in which we uh, make errors in our cognition and try to find tools uh, that can help us overcome them. Um, I put those together in a book called Reason Better. And this is one of the tools that I think is most important. It's, uh, it's called decoupling. So, and this is gonna help us, especially with something called confirmation bias. You've probably heard that term. The way I'm using the term is to mean uh, the tendency to acquire and evaluate evidence in a way that supports our pre-existing views. So it, these pre-existing views don't have to necessarily be things that we're motivated by, uh, things that we sort of really want to be true or attached to or something. It could just be something that popped into your head and you found plausible. And then um, you start to notice things that fit with that belief, right? You start to, you know, th things that sort of make sense. And, uh, and, and you don't notice things that um, disconfirm it as much. Um, and this is so one of the ways that confirmation bias works. And then when we interpret evidence, we see evidence, we sort of interpret in a way that um, matches the thing that we think is probably already true. So lots of really great evidence on confirmation bias. Um, and I should say that confirmation bias tends to be worse when we are attached, when we do have some motive for that pre-existing beliefs. Um, so if you take a bunch of people who have varying beliefs about something like, let's say, um, whether capital punishment um, deters crime. So you know, you ask people, how confident are you uh, that capital punishment deters crime? And then you give them a bunch of evidence, a pile of evidence um, in both directions. So maybe a study that goes in one direction, a study that goes in another direction. And at the end, you say, now, how confident are you um, about that belief that you started with? And you might hope, well, um, we gave them some uh, evidence that went in both directions. So uh, you might hope they'd be less confident, but actually almost everybody is more confident in the belief they started with. And in general, people are twice as likely to say that this new mixed evidence on the whole supports the view that they started with more than the other view. And so the problem with this is, you know, since most of the time there's mixed evidence for things, um, it's very hard to get people to dislodge a belief that they already have. Um, and this can be the case even if they're not sort of particularly attached to it. What's really interesting about these studies too is that people really are trying hard. Um, they are carefully examining the opposing evidence. If you, you know, if you give the test to undergraduate, if you do the study in undergraduates and who know about study methodology and things like that, they'll be picking apart the opposing study and they'll be saying, you know, I'm being extremely fair. I just never realized how weak the evidence is on the other side. I mean, you say, look, there's a thing called confirmation bias. Let me tell you about it. People who do this study almost always end up uh, more confident in the view that they started with. Okay, go read the studies and see what happens. And people come out and say, um, so it just so happens in this case, I know you're going to think this is confirmation bias, but um, it really is just true in this case that the evidence um, that you gave me on the whole supports my view more, that there are more problems with the study on the other side. Okay, so this is what we're dealing with with confirmation bias, very hard thing to overcome. And part of the reason is that we don't see it happening, right? Um, 
it'd be very convenient if you could just decide to believe something, but it doesn't work like that. You, um, we don't want to see that we're um, affecting the way that we think. And for the most part, these processes are going on sort of under the hood. They're not um, open to our introspection. So the idea that you should be able to tell just by looking, just by checking to your, see your motivations, by um, checking to see if you feel like you're being biased, that's called the introspection illusion. And what's particularly sort of pernicious about this uh, illusion is that like, you think you're not being biased because you don't feel like you're being biased. Uh, it feels like you're being really fair. And then you look over and um, your opponent maybe is looking at the very same evidence and comes to a different conclusion. And you think, wow, that person's got to be being biased because they're coming to a different conclusion from the same evidence. And what's more, they should be able to tell that they're being biased, right, by introspecting. And so they're not. They're, um, they're being dishonest somehow with themselves or with me, they're not really arguing in bad faith because they're, they're biased and they're ignoring the fact that they're biased. So, of course, this is going to lead people to generally think about the, uh, the, their opponents that they're um, somehow arguing in bad faith. So although we can't just directly uh, check, look inside and see how biased we're being, there are things that we can do um, to sort of step back and ask ourselves, am I in a situation here where I might be in danger of confirmation bias? I think it's very hard in the moment when you're doing the, the evaluation of evidence. Um, so one thing you could do is notice signs of attachment because attachment does make confirmation bias worse. So do you, um, does it, do you feel hungry for evidence? You know, like, oh, look, there's a piece of evidence that supports the thing that I think. Um, do you feel, um, do you sort of flinch away from, from things that might be evidence on the other side? If there's a little like, um, if there's a thread sticking out of the sweater, so to speak, like something that just doesn't feel a little bit right, do you yank on that thread to see where it's going to go? Like you would if it was in your opponent's sweater or do you just kind of uh, let it go? So this is, if it's feeling like that, that's not something that we do when we're really curious about whether something is true and we really want to know whether it's true. So that's a sign of attachment. And it's not that, it's not that I think we can avoid attachment. We always should avoid attachment. Of course, there are things that we want to be true. Um, it's just that we have to be especially vigilant in those cases um, and try some of the techniques that I'm going to be talking about because uh, there are actually things that can help us overcome confirmation bias. So another thing um, that we can do is, is look for something that Jonathan Barron has called belief overkill. So belief overkill is a, it's essentially when all of the considerations seem to fall in favor of the thing that you happen to think is right. So um, it's not just that, you know, um, veganism is uh, more humane and better for the environment, but also um, once you started to um, adopt veganism, you, you start to notice that um, some people say it's better for your health than any other diet, including the Mediterranean diet. Um, some people say, you know, maybe there's some reason to think it's better for your cognition. I mean, that might be a bit of a worry because of creatine, who knows? Um, but that, you know, and um, it feels like maybe it's better for your sex life. Uh, you heard that it makes people smell better. And you know, so if, if you actually start to think that actually, yes, um, all the considerations are in favor of veganism, that might be an indication that um, we're just at this point collecting sort of ammo, right? We're just sort of, it's an arsenal of uh, reasons, not uh, genuinely being curious about the, the truth because these things don't really hang together. There's no reason why, in addition to being the most humane diet, it should also be the most healthy diet. It should also help your sex life. Those are just totally independent things. Very, very lucky that they all fall in the same direction. Um, and you don't need it. We don't need for all those things to be true. If you're a vegan, then you know, probably the fact that it's more humane and better for the environment might be adequate. 
All right, so then you notice, if you notice this belief overkill, then another reason to be especially vigilant. I mean, I might also add, never having changed your mind about something um, since you were six years old is also maybe a bit of a bad sign for confirmation bias as well. Um, so what's going on with the evaluation of evidence when we're affected by confirmation bias is we think that something's already true. And then new evidence that comes along seems like it's probably going to be weak. And um, if, it, if it goes against what we already think and um, new evidence that comes along seems like it's going to be strong if it fits what we already think. I mean, even if we're not motivated, it's just like, this is how we think the world is. And so, yeah, that, that study seems plausible because it's, you know, it's, it goes along with how I think that the world is. Um, so the reason that this is pernicious is, well, um, just imagine a case where you think uh, there's a 50-50 chance that this particular claim is true. And now I encounter uh, a piece of really strong evidence for the claim and a piece of really strong evidence against the claim, the, the equally strong evidence. But um, if bias evaluation is going on, what's happening is I take the one bit of evidence, I become you know, fairly convinced that the claim is probably true. And then when I look at the second bit of evidence, um, it seems like it's probably not that good. It's not very strong evidence because of the effect of confirmation bias here. And so I end up thinking um, probably the claim is still true. Or in the other direction, if I had gotten the other bit of evidence first, I think it's probably false. And then I think that the evidence in favor of it is probably bad evidence. And now I end up thinking it's probably false. But the order of the evidence shouldn't matter, right? We started off 50-50. Um, we got two bits of evidence that were equally strong. What's going on? We really should end up at 50-50 again. All right. So that's why it's pernicious uh, to let um, our prior confidence um, affect the evaluation of the strength of evidence. So what do we want to do? In fact, the way to test uh, the strength of evidence um, is to completely set aside whether the hypothesis is true. So we're considering whether E, some, some potential bit of evidence, is evidence for a hypothesis H. Completely set aside whether or not H is true, whether or not we think H is true, and actually do two, um, so ask ourselves two hypothetical questions. Supposing H is true, how likely is it that we would have observed this fact? Supposing H is false, how likely is it that we would have observed this fact? And um, actually in sort of the, the literature on um, gathering evidence and um, updating on evidence, uh, um, and if you look at sort of statistics and epidemiology and all of this, this is the gold standard for the strength of evidence. You may have heard of like p-values and things like this. In fact, um, the, the strength of the evidence expressed as a ratio of these two values, which is called Bayes uh, factor, I'm going to call it the strength factor or just the strength of the evidence. This is the richest um, and the kind of, this gives us all the information we need to know about the strength of the evidence we're getting. And so, um, uh, and it has nothing to do with whether we think H is true or not um, with how confident we are in H. Um, you know, I, I guess if, if H is like a logical contradiction, then that causes problems for this test. But um, in all other kinds of cases, it's, it's uh, what we're doing is we're asking um, this purely hypothetical questions. Okay, so like take an example. Um, I noticed that my, I'm wondering whether my friend is at home. I noticed that, the, um, that his lights are on. And then I think, uh, is that evidence that he's home? Well, okay, if my friend leaves his lights on all the time, regardless of whether or not he's home, then it's not evidence. Why? Because the observation is just as likely if he's home as if he's not home, right? If my friend is super conscientious, always turns the lights off when he leaves, always keeps them on when he's home, um, just like a, a creature of habit like that, um, then it's very strong evidence. If my friend is, you know, um, like 
uh, pretty uncareful about these things, then it's some evidence and so on. And it's exactly this is what we're doing. We're just asking how likely is it that you'd leave the lights on if you're home and comparing that to how likely is it you'd leave the lights on if you weren't home. All right, so um, I'll be showing how to integrate these two things to come up with a new degree of confidence, to come up with our new, you know, how confident we should be after getting the evidence. So that's the subject of my next talk tomorrow. And by the way, that involves no, uh, you don't need any mathematical background or anything like that. So it's a very um, gentle introduction to Bayesian updating. But the key thing here is we need to decouple that prior confidence uh, that we have from the strength of the new evidence. That is, um, we need to be able to evaluate the strength of the evidence on its own and not in a way that's colored by um, that prior confidence. And so, and eventually we're going to put them together to get our new confidence. But the tricky thing here is you can't just tell people to decouple, right? Don't allow your prior confidence to affect how you're evaluating the evidence. That doesn't really work as a strategy because of um, the introspection illusion, because of well, something called bias blind spot, where we uh, don't notice that we have a bias, even if we've been like, even if we've been told about the existence of this bias and the fact that almost everybody has it. All right. So what do we, in fact, practically, what are the things that can do? Well, there are some things that work. Um, if you run one of these studies where you give people mixed evidence and then you see how their beliefs are affected and rather than telling them to just try not to be biased, you say, look, when you consider this piece of evidence, this study, whatever it is, ask yourself how you would have responded to that evidence if you had the opposite view. So, you know, suppose you get a piece of evidence and then you're looking at the study and you just think, ah, this isn't a very good study. Um, it goes against the view that I had. And you ask yourself, well, how would I have treated this study if I had the opposite view? If I, would have I treated it as like actually pretty strong evidence for my view? Um, and so, and then it becomes a little harder to sort of, um, you know, treat the whatever little flaws you may have found as super important. Um, you know, or in the other direction, um, you find something that seems to really support your view and you think, great, this is wonderful. But then you ask yourself, okay, how would I look at this study if I held the opposite view? Well, I probably would have like tried to find some flaws and, and that might help you notice some flaws you wouldn't have otherwise have found. And there's another similar thing, which is rather than just asking, um, it, it might be easier rather than asking um, what you would have thought if you had the opposite view, um, you ask yourself, what if I had had this view, but this particular study actually came up with a different result? You know, like, would I have evaluated the methodology differently? Um, if, uh, you know, if the study is in my favor um, and I think, great, this is really good evidence for my view. And I think, okay, well, what if this study with this methodology, roughly the same evidence had actually gone um, in the other direction, had a different result? Well, you know, I might've, um, found some flaws of the study, I might have treated the evidence a little differently than I actually treated. I might not have sort of wholeheartedly endorsed it. I might have uh, worried about, you know, who's behind the, who's paying for it or whatever it is. And so what's going on here is um, this strategy from a Bayesian standpoint is forcing us to um, decouple the way that we evaluate the evidence from our prior confidence. It's forcing us to do the, the, the genuinely hypothetical thing, which is really required to evaluate the strength of the evidence, to step back from what we actually think um, uh, is true about the hypothesis and just evaluate the evidence on its own merits. And then, of course, we're not just going to forget about um, past evidence that we have that supports a view or whatever. We're going to then integrate those two things as we will describe um, in my talk tomorrow. Thank you very much. I'll take questions now. Great. Thank you so much for that talk, David. Um, that was very thought-provoking. 
Um, I'm not sure we like all learn a lot. So we're gonna get started with some of the questions here. Um, the most upvoted question is, um, so I guess uh, this alludes to like system one and system two thinking that we may be familiar with. So um, how can you distinguish between the two states? One is um, you may be like an amateur at analyzing evidence. Um, and so like you may be more prone to confirmation bias as you mentioned, but the other state is in which you're an expert in a particular field. And so you're more like um, well-tuned, you have a more like well-tuned gut reaction to on certain quality arguments. Um, so how would you be able to distinguish between those two states? Yeah, this is a great question because it's sometimes we sometimes think um, that system one is a thing that we should overlook and always um, override with system two, the more sort of uh, conscious, deliberate, aware um, system. Um, and there is something called skilled intuition, which is a really um, fast and accurate gut judgments, uh, recognizing learned patterns. And um, people who have a great deal of experience in environments that offer really quick, uh, clear, reliable feedback um, about the accuracy of those judgments can develop these skilled intuitions where their gut intuitions actually, you know, they might recognize something going on. Uh, you know, if, if you're, maybe you're a, a doctor, you recognize something going on in a way that you can't quite put, put words to or you can't quite articulate. Um, those kinds of skilled intuitions uh, do exist, but they really require this kind of special environment. And I think we're very often not in those environments. Most people that think that they have skilled intuition of this kind actually don't. Um, pundits on various types of, uh, you know, just like telling us their gut intuitions about things. Yeah, ask yourself, have they been in environments where over and over and over those gut reactions have been tested and they've had clear, quick, reliable feedback um, and then also somebody mentioned in the chat um, that you can actually test the reliability of these intuitions using a calibration. So, um, you know, if you start to feel that something is 80% probable, for example, over and over, um, you know, you write down the probabilities that you have and then see how often when you're 80% confident in something that comes out true. And if it's about 80%, then that's great. Your calibration is right on target. Um, but unfortunately, um, yeah, most of the time, I think when people think they have something like skilled intuition, they, they, um, they don't, or at least, uh, we should be very careful. Yeah. So it seems like, uh, this like development of skilled intuition is, um, something that's habit forming, right? You have to like kind of deliberately, um, access it initially, but then it becomes like it's sort of incorporated um, into a rather like intuitive process. But um, what I guess like what are some uh, concrete ways that you'd propose to students for them to like make this a, a more habit forming practice? Uh, yeah, um, well, if, if you wanted to de develop skilled intuition on some topic, um, then making sure that you have clear, quick, reliable feedback that you're actually checking every time um, that you're actually getting that feedback because if it's, and that it's not sort of, what's the word, um, uh, ambiguous, you know? So for example, um, people who are predicting the stock market moving up and down, they'll say like, oh, it's gonna move up. And then, you know, if eventually it moves up, they say they're right. So it's got, you gotta have sort of, um, you're making predictions with uh, clear deadlines, with clear outcomes, you're checking to see how reliable that is, you're getting that feedback. But for lots of kinds of things, we don't get that kind of feedback. Um, and so there's kind of no way uh, for us to develop mm -hmm. skilled intuition. Yeah, which sort of segues into um, a question that was posed about implicit bias. Um, yeah, what are some ways that we can like tackle implicit bias in this sense, or can we at all? Um, so yeah, I guess it's, um, 
term implicit bias is it's a it's a bit of a tricky um, it's a bit of a tricky issue. This is a and something that can be it's a set of associations that can be tested um, and you know you can go and look up sort of the implicit bias test and um, it's difficult to know exactly what what it means uh, in the sense that like what the outcomes are going to be for example um, you know in these tests often um, you know black people come out looking like they implicitly associate being black with negative attributes and um, and that doesn't mean that they're racist. It means something like, um, you know, their brain is aware of an association that exists. Um, and so I think implicit bias is a very hard thing to know exactly how to um, measure and how to, um, um, yeah. But how to overcome it, I guess, is like the, um, there's ways in which we can sort of quarantine ourselves from certain information that might bias us. Um, so if you're looking at a bunch of, um, say, applications or um, resumes, and you could like try to quarantine yourself from uh, from facts that might bias you in one direction or another um, that aren't relevant to the to the person's abilities. Um, you can um, you, you can actually take an implicit bias bias test kind of immediately after having sort of um, called to mind a paradigm a sort of anti-stereotype paradigm. And if you do that, then typically the, um, the bias goes away for a time um, or reduces. And so that's another thing that you can do if you're worried about implicit bias in a particular case is sort of call to mind um, an, a sort of anti-stereotype that will um, help reduce it. Yeah, basically just um, trying to deliberately um, explore your own cognition and go from there. Yeah, but I mean, it is it is tough. The best thing really to do is if you think there's a fact that, that could be biasing you that you can actually just blind yourself to, then that's probably the best approach. Because yeah. um, we can't see the ways in which these things are mm -hmm. affecting our, our cognition. So like selectively picking out what information to consume. Um, yeah. Which is, which is a really challenging problem because Sam also asked, so like given that confirmation bias is a major issue in social media, right? Um, in what ways do you think the social media companies or the regulators overseeing these companies um, can use the, these techniques to overcome some of the biases that we experience? Wow, yeah, it's very tricky because uh, we are, you know, they're optimizing for engagement and the things that engage us are things that um, we uh, sort of, um, appeal to our um, confirmation bias and sort of make us think, oh, this is a great example for, you know, the thing that I've always thought about those people on the other side. Um, and so unfortunately, anything that optimizes for engagement like that is is going to um, uh, have the effect of just increasing our confirmation bias, putting us in these kind of, you know, echo chambers that people have been talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. sure there's a way, you know, given that that's the, um, that's the sort of model that they have for revenue that um, barring some different kind of model, you know, like a subscription service rather than a, you know, where they're not necessarily just you know, like trying to maximize, optimize for engagement all the time. Um, it's difficult to know how we would expect them to do otherwise. It's a similar thing with, with news media. Great. Um, so given that uh, we've run out of time, uh, I'm going to take one more question about your guide to critical thinking. Um, yeah. So Martin asked whether or not it will stay accessible after the conference. Yes, yes at least for the next six months or so, <laughs> you'll be able to use that um, that link. And uh, if you ever need it um, or, you know, 
it doesn't seem to be working or something, just let me know. Email me. Okay, wonderful. Um, thank you so much. Bye, guys. Yep.